Hey there, and welcome to the year-end episode of YDHTY. I'm your host, Dan Sally, and in keeping with the tradition, I started last year. We're going to forgo the standard fanfare, the music, the guests, and I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the big takeaways that I've gotten from the last 12 months of episodes and the way that's going to be shaping my approach to the next batch of episodes we have coming out in the new year. Now, before I get into it, there's an analogy or a framework that I've used to help me understand how governments and how nations are behaving in the current decade. And the analogy I use is that of a skyscraper. And if you're not aware, when they build a skyscraper, they build it to bend with the wind. So what they look at is, you know, what are the strongest wind gusts in the region they're building it in? And how do they make it flexible enough so it doesn't topple in an extremely strong storm? And so the balance there is making a structure that is strong enough or rigid enough to retain its structural integrity, but not so rigid that when the wind starts blowing, it just topples over. And I think if we apply that analogy to this decade, the winds have not blown harder in a very, very long time. And I think we've seen the American system bend with that storm. So all of the nightmare scenarios the founding fathers imagined, uh, mob rule, demagoguery, an aspiring tyrant, we've seen them all in the, the beginning of this decade. And thankfully, the American system has survived. So I think there's a lot of credit to go around. I think the distributed nature of power in this country worked. I think federalism worked in this case. But I also think it's a time to look at the structure of the United States and say, well, where are some of the flaws? And in my mind, the chief structural flaw in American democracy is one that I identified when I started this podcast, which is our system of elections. And if you haven't listened to this podcast long enough to know, I'll explain. And if you have, I'm going to apologize. But America's system of elections is one known as first past the post. And what that means is the candidate with the most votes, not necessarily a majority, wins. And that makes sense on its face. But when you dig into the numbers, that could mean you win 51% of a two-way race, but it could also mean you win 34% of a three-way race or 26% of a four-way race. You get the idea. Now, the incentive structure this sets up for politicians creates the level of political polarization we see today. Because I don't need to campaign for the majority of voters. I just need to campaign for enough to win. And what this does is this encourages politicians to divide the electorate, typically into these hardened factions of single-issue voters. And again, it creates an environment where the base is satisfied and a large number of independents are really left out and voting for the lesser of two evils. One of the reforms I actively promote outside of this podcast is ranked choice voting. And that's a system that really requires that candidates campaign for the majority of voters rather than just these factions of partisans. Now, 
we've seen the results of ranked choice voting play out in the most recent midterms. And in Alaska, which uses a system called Final Four, we saw two trumped back candidates lose to more moderate candidates in the midterms. The first was Lisa Murkowski, who was the only Senate Republican who voted for the impeachment of Donald Trump, who was up for re-election this year. Trump very vocally wanted her out and had his own candidate, Kelly Chewbacca, running against her. Now, Murkowski ended up winning. Now, more surprising than that was the race for Alaska's at-large congressional district, where a Democrat, Mary Peltola, won re-election against Trump-backed Sarah Palin. And now for a Democrat to win an election in Alaska's surprising, much less re-election. And I think this goes to show how ranked choice voting has really required all candidates to focus on what the majority of the voters they serve think and really neutralizes the threat of being primaried out by more extreme members of your party. Now, Nevada just voted to implement a system of ranked choice voting known as Final Five, similar to what's being used in Alaska for elections going forward. And so we're seeing the electoral reform movement gain some serious momentum. And this is something I'm going to spend more time talking about with people on the ground making this happen in 2023. Now, there's a second question that I've been asking in recent episodes, which is why now? Why is it that 2020 is the decade where this partisan storm has reached a fever pitch? And I don't know if you've picked up on this, but we've really been piecing together an answer to this question in the episodes that followed Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And given that the path has been sort of scattered, I'm going to put it together here in a bit more of a sensible format. Now, in my mind, there are two big factors that come into play. Now, the first is the connection between energy consumption and economic growth. And from the conversations we had with Kerry King in December and Jed Dorsheimer in November, we learned that there's no real economic growth without a net increase in energy consumption. Now, the second is the role the U.S. dollar plays in the global economy. Now, back in 1944, the dollar was made the de facto global currency via the Bretton Woods Agreement, and that created demand for dollars outside of the United States. Now, the dollar's value at the time was pegged to gold, but this all changed, and with it, the fiscal landscape of the United States and the world, and I'll talk about that in a bit. Now, if we look at the two decades following World War II, these are the decades everyone running for office talks about as the baseline for the American dream. We had abundant energy supplies, and by that, we had consistent economic growth. And this was also a period where we had the lowest levels of political polarization since the Civil War, and we passed some landmark legislation as a result. Now, as we get into the 1970s, Energy supplies are throttled, both due to declining oil production in the United States and OPEC's oil embargo, and that leads to nearly flat energy consumption and with that a stagnating economy. Now, we also saw the Bretton Woods Agreement begin to fall apart as borrowers began to question the ability of the U.S. to pay off debts racked up from social programs and from the Vietnam War. And now Richard Nixon, who was president at the time, had the choice to cut spending 
raise taxes, or take the US dollar off the gold standard. And the first two options would have cost him re-election, so he went with option three, and he removed a significant barrier to the United States' ability to take on debt. And effectively, the US could take on as much debt as there was demand for dollars outside of the United States. And he further shored up the dollar's position via an arrangement with Saudi Arabia to buy and sell oil exclusively in U.S. dollars, which effectively meant if you were looking to buy oil, you would need to hold some U.S. dollar reserves. Now, since that moment in time, U.S. debt levels as a percentage of GDP have increased year over year, as has the level of income inequality. And to put some numbers behind that, in 1980, the share of income from the richest 1% of Americans was around 11%, while the bottom 50% share was a little over 20%. Now, in 2018, those numbers almost flipped, with the bottom 50% holding around 13% of the wealth to the 1%'s 20%. And it should also be noted that while the 1% share of income in Western Europe has risen slightly to the bottom 50%, their numbers are still in line with where America was in 1980. So to sew this all together, as the U.S. economy has consumed less energy, the economy has produced less in real terms. The expansion of debt has led to increased wealth in the financial sector and helped those who have money and investable assets, but the producer class have suffered economically. And so this gets us back to why now. Now, in the December 15th episode with Nolan McCarty, we talked about how political polarization increases alongside income inequality. And this is something he saw both in the run-up to the Great Depression and with the increasing levels of polarization we've seen since the 1970s. And if we go back to the Nixon era, this was really the start of culture war issues taking over American politics. And he did this by politicizing the Vietnam War and his law and order messaging, which was really playing off the racial anxieties of white Southern Democrats. But then we add abortion to the mix later. And now, of course, we politicized coronavirus, immigration. We have laws targeting transgender children. And for me, it's very, very difficult to look at any of these issues in the news and not see politicians avoiding the real tough economic questions that Nixon avoided back in 1970. You know, when Nixon took the U.S. off the gold standard, he did the politically expedient thing, and he allowed the U.S. government to continue to provide services Americans know and love without any increase in taxes. And the subsequent generations of politicians have followed suit. And the economic imbalances causing much of the discontent today are really hard to fix. And culture war issues are really easy, but they also work at the expense of social cohesion. Now, electoral reform is the first step to neutralizing the culture wars, but there are some huge imbalances we're going to need to fix in terms of how we distribute wealth and how we set ourselves up for more sustainable economic growth in the future. And this is stuff I'm going to continue to explore in 2023. As always, I hope you'll join me in the journey. I hope you have a happy new year. And if you have any suggestions, you can always email me at heydan, that is H-E-Y-D-A-N, at Y-D-H-T-Y dot com.